Uh, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture reading comes from Proverbs chapter 9, verses 1 through 6. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn and hear. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Kathy, for reading God's word to us, and welcome once again to all of you who've gathered with us today to worship God. We have already heard from God many invitations to come to him. The voice of Jesus has been heard in the songs that we've sung in our call to worship, calling us, inviting us to come to him. And so let's respond in prayer even now before we jump into God's word. Lord Jesus, we know that wherever we have gathered in your name, you're present with us by your spirit. And we know that through the very reading of your word and the singing of your word, you've reminded us that you who are present with us calls us, calls us to draw near to you, to receive grace, to receive pardon, to receive newness of life. And so we ask you to give us hearts that are open to your invitation that will urgently respond with faith to you. It's in your name we ask it. Amen. Um, have any of you ever been invited to two parties on the same day and you had to decide which one to go to? Has that ever happened? If so, that's something like the setup in Proverbs chapter 9. When we read Proverbs chapter 9, what we find is there are two hosts, there are two house parties, there are two invites, and each of us must choose which invitation to accept. The author of Proverbs tells us a little bit about each of these parties or feasts. One of them is thrown by a woman named Wisdom. The other is thrown by a woman named Folly. Folly. Now, folly is not a word that we use very often anymore. It means foolishness. Or, or even in some cases, folly can really mean madness or insanity. You see, wisdom, wisdom is the opposite of folly. Wisdom is the ability to navigate life well. Wisdom is the ability to live in the real world in a way that aligns with what is true and healthy and good and leads to flourishing. Folly is its opposite. So over the past two weeks, we've been trying to learn about how to live wisely from the book of Proverbs. In, in an effort to help us navigate this new year that we've just started, we need wisdom. And so this week, we're going to look at wisdom again in the book of Proverbs, but we're also going to see what Proverbs 9 has to tell us about the opposite of wisdom, about the madness of rejecting wisdom. So Proverbs 9, it describes these two uh, ideas, wisdom and folly, as if they were people, as if they were women. And then it asks us, which of these two folks will you welcome into your life? Who will you welcome into your life? 
the person wisdom or the person folly? Which one will you sit down with and listen to? Which one will you party with? Because the fact is that daily and perhaps even moment to moment, we all have choices to make between wisdom and folly. And we're making those decisions all the time. Now, I would admit, and maybe life is nuanced, right? Life is nuanced. And a lot of the decisions we have to make from day to day aren't necessarily decisions between good and evil. They're not, every decision is not a decision that is black and white that way. There are lots of grays. And God knows that. God is not saying that every choice you make is essentially a choice between wisdom and folly. But what God is telling us here in Proverbs 9 is that we must evaluate how we're living at a deeper level. In, in, in other words, what the author is saying is who or what is guiding all of your choices. No matter what choices you're making, who is guiding them or what is guiding them? Who or what is shaping your character and your decisions? Who or what is guiding the trajectory of your life? Because the fact is that we make many small and big decisions every day, but we are, in one sense, on a trajectory. We are headed somewhere. We are becoming certain kinds of people. Who or what is guiding that trajectory and shaping the direction of your life? You know, the beginning of this book of Proverbs is written from the perspective of a father who's instructing his son. And he knows that his son is going to face lots of, he's going to have lots of options in life. He knows his son is going to have many choices to make. And there are so many things that, this, that are going to be open up to the son and so many things that he can do with his life. But essentially, his father is saying, you still have to choose between a life that's going to be guided by wisdom or a life that's going to be guided by folly. You're going to have to choose between a life that's guided by truth or by lies. And, and the more that we understand Proverbs, the more that we're going to see that this choice that's laid out before us is really a choice between following God on the one hand or following other voices that are contrary to God's. It's a binary decision. And some of us may feel uncomfortable about that because we say, hey, life is much more nuanced than that. It, it is. Life is nuanced. But there is, underneath it all, a binary choice that we all must make. It's this, this, this twofold set of options between a life under the guidance and under the authority of God himself or a life that's lived in isolation from God, that, that rejects God, his instruction, his will, rejects all that. So, so this is the kind of binary choice that Proverbs is laying before us. And really this whole binary idea is, is throughout scripture. It's not just here. You can see it in the words of Jesus. Look what Jesus said in a sermon in Matthew 7. Verse 13, he said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So you, you realize all of life here, Jesus reduces to two gates. In two ways. All the complexities of life, and Jesus was familiar with all the complexities, but he said, but underneath it all, there's a choice between one gate or the other gate. One way, the narrow way, or the wide way. And later on in that very same sermon, 
Just a few verses later, Jesus says this, verse 24. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat at that house, and it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. So once again, two options. Here it's between two different foundations. Two options. This binary emerges in Jesus' teaching over and over again. In fact, it's also in the Old Testament where God told his people once to choose who they were going to follow, and he gave them two options. In 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21, the prophet Elijah speaks the words of God and says, he came near to all the people and he said, how long will you go limping between two different options? Two options. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. Will you worship God, who is truly God, or Baal, which could be serve as a stand-in for anything else that claims to be God. In other words, you must choose who you will fundamentally trust and listen to in all the details of your life. Who's going to have the authority to speak into your life and direct you? And we're all faced with that choice today. There are many people, look, the internet is full of people that want to give us advice, right? Some of it more helpful than others, who want to instruct us, teach us life hacks or whatever. And some of it's more, some of it's better than others, right? So whether it's, you know, YouTubers or TikTok or influencers of all different sorts. And if you think you're too old for that stuff, you've got political pundits that'll be happy to tell you how to live your life and who to vote for and what to think. They're influencers too, you know. You ever talk to someone, and after a little while, you can tell where they got their information from? It's like you can tell who they've been listening to, right? The, the speaking points, the talking points are there. And like, oh, I know where you get your news. I think I might subscribe to the same YouTuber you subscribe. Like, I, I recognize that. Jesus is telling us through the book of Proverbs that if we will, if we will choose the way of wisdom, if we will choose to sit at the feet of Jesus and learn how to live from him, then that's going to shape our lives and it's going to become apparent to other people who know us. They're going to say, oh, I know where you get your talking points from. I know where you get this way of life from. You, you've, been, you've been listening to Jesus. So how about us here today? How about us? Are we choosing the way of wisdom or the way of folly? Are we listening to the voice of wisdom or to the voice of folly? We're, we're going we're gonna to look at each of these invitations that show up in Proverbs chapter 9. The first invitation is wisdom's invitation. That was read to us by Kathy just a few moments ago. And by the way, just d d b wisdom and folly are both depicted as, as women here. Um, you might ask, why? Why is that? Well, it's a metaphor, first of all, right? Clearly, it's a metaphor. And remember, this is a father writing to his son. And so perhaps the father, he thought, the, well, the best way for me to communicate these ideas to my son are, are to create two characters that will be appealing to my son that, that have some, some sense of attraction and appeal to him. Uh, let's use two women. 
Maybe for you, another metaphor would work better. You can contextualize it for yourself. But this father tells his young man, here's the invitation that wisdom extends to you. Verse 1, wisdom has built her house. She's hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. In other words, pause here. She, she has done all the work necessary to host this party. She has worked hard to prepare this feast. She, she didn't just, just order in some food. This party is costly party. It took lots of planning and work. She's investing in it. And it says in verse 3, she has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, verse 5, come and eat my bread and drink the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. You see, this woman is urgently sending out word she sent out a team of people to call people to her feast. And this, this feast is open to folks who are simple, who lack sense, but don't want to stay simple. It's open to people who, who need instruction and need wisdom and, and want it. In fact, to come to her house and come to this party means you are leaving your naive, foolish, stupid ways behind because you want to you wanna now walk in discernment. You want to walk with good judgment. And so she says, if that's what you want, come to this party. That's what you're going to learn here. That's what you're going to acquire here. So she says, come sit with me and we'll eat together the food that I made She's generous with what she's worked for. She's, she, she, she's giving them costly bread, costly wine. She's offering it to us. And the result is, if you will receive all this from her, she says, you will live. You will live. In other words, you're going to thrive. You're going to flourish. You're going to walk out of here better than when you walked in. And you're going to learn truly, truly how to live life the way you were meant to live it. That's wisdom's invitation. And let's look at Folly's invitation. It starts down in verse 13. The woman Folly is loud. She's seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. Compare that with the woman wisdom, by the way, who is, who is working to produce something to, to offer to her guests. This one is, is um, she's, she's sitting. She's lounging. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by. It's much more passive, but it's a, it's a call, nevertheless, who are going straight on their way. She hasn't sent out a team to, to gather people. She's just kind of talking to people who are on their way. They've got somewhere to go. She's distracting them from the path they're on and saying, come this way. Whoever is simple, let them turn in here. And notice it's the same crowd she's speaking to, simple people. People who need instruction, people who lack sense. But look at what she says in verse 17. Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he, he does not know that the dead are there. That her guests are in the depths of Sheol. In other words... Her guests are in the depths of hell. This poor fool doesn't realize 
the final outcome of accepting this invitation. You see how stark this contrast is. This host is seductive and knows nothing, right? The opposite of wisdom. And the way she invites people is different. And it's likely that the picture here is meant to, it's meant to look something like a prostitute, in fact. And what she's offering is different, too, because she's offering stolen food to be eaten in hiding in the dark. She's offering something illicit, and something that really has a hidden, tragic outcome. This is, this is like a horror movie set up. This house is a dangerous place. And this host is a dangerous person. This host, Folly, she, she has bodies buried in the basement that guests don't know about. She's inviting you to a feast, but this feast actually ends with entrapment and death. As I was reading this this week, I couldn't help but think of um, the Jordan Peele movie, Get Out. I don't know how many people watched Get Out, but if you happen to, I'm not even saying you should go watch, but if you have watched it, then maybe, you're, you, you, maybe th this, this picture here calls to mind the idea of, of an innocent person being invited to a lavish feast, a party, and yet something feels just a little bit off about it. And the longer he sticks around, the more he realizes that something is very off about this party. In fact, this is a dangerous place. In fact, I'm not just a guest, I'm a target. And by the time he realizes it, there's no way out. So there you have it. Two women invite you to their party. One is a generous neighbor, the other is a serial killer a predator. One sees your vulnerability and, and as an occasion to help, sees your weakness, your naivety as, as, a, as an occasion to extend grace and help, and the other person sees your vulnerability as an opportunity to target you, to take advantage of you, to harm you and entrap you. And yet, there's something enticing about the invitation. After all, wouldn't we all have to admit that we've been lured into that house? Have you ever been lured into the house of folly? What do I mean by that? Let's get rid of all the metaphors. Here's what I mean. Haven't you been tempted towards things that you knew were unwise and dangerous? maybe behaviors, relationships, experiences that, that we knew deep down were wrong or maybe we knew they were unethical or they were immoral. Perhaps even we saw that they were dangerous and yet we walked through the doors. Have you ever been there? Perhaps, perhaps you finally got out. Maybe you had to fight your way out. Or maybe, maybe some of you are still trapped in the house of folly, entangled. But why did you go in in the first place? 
I think it's a question worth asking. Why would any of us walk into that house in the first place? In other words, how, how is it that folly entices us? I'm going to give you just two ways, and maybe there are others. I just want to give you two ways that I think are very obvious, that, and it's here in the text, that folly entices us. Um, folly highlights the short-term benefits and hides the long-term consequences. Folly highlights short-term benefits, comforts, uh, uh, pleasures, but hides long-term consequences. You see, folly typically looks good for a time, and it is good for a time. It feels good. It works well. The right kind of folly in your life can bring momentary satisfaction. It, but the fact is it's true. Maybe it's true. Stolen water is sweet. Maybe it is. And bread eaten in secret can be pleasant. Hidden things, illicit things can be quite pleasant. But it's also so, so temporary. It's just a brief rest stop on, on what really never ends well. Proverbs 20:17 picks up the same metaphor of, of bread eaten illicitly. It says, bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be full of gravel. It's like a nightmare. You take a bite of something delicious, and the next thing you know, the inside of your mouth is being cut and your teeth are breaking. The attraction is seductive, but the downside is hidden. And really, if we're going to be honest, sometimes we know there's a downside. We might be simple, but we're not that simple. But we take our chances. We take our chances. Maybe we walk into the house of folly and we only plan to stay there for a little while. We, we just plan to stop in. And this is, this is, in fact, the allure of sin. Here's how it might work. I'll, I'll, I'm, I'll just click on this link and glance at this. I just want to see what this is. What is this? Let me, let me, let me click on this. I, it might not be too bad. Let me just take a look at it for a moment. Or, or, or let, let's see where this relationship goes. It, it, what, I'm not committing to anything here, but let me just engage in this conversation and see where this goes. The downside is, you see it. The warnings are going off in your head. But we, what's being highlighted in that moment is the short-term benefits. The, the, the short-term allure of an illicit relationship of a pornographic image. For instance, you don't plan to move into this house. You're just stopping in. You, it's what you really want deep down. You want to live in the house of wisdom, but, but you just want to stop over at the house of folly once in a while. The house of insanity, the house of madness, and it is madness. And so you linger and you hang out every once in a while. Look, that's the story of every addict. It's the story of every adulterer I've ever met. And soon, maybe you want to, you just want to live in both houses. <laughs> maybe split your time between them. You start leaving your toothbrush at the house of folly because you know you'll be back. And, and soon you're getting your mail forwarded there and soon you've moved in altogether. And soon you can't even hear wisdom's voice calling out to you anymore because the windows are shut and the, and the music is blasting. In fact, in fact, when wisdom's messengers come to speak to you, namely brothers and sisters in Christ, text you and call you and try to call you in the name of wisdom back towards health, back towards safety, you're not even, 
you don't have time for that anymore. You're not even listening to the messengers of wisdom anymore. You've cut off contact. All the while, we know better, don't we? But as someone has once said, the heart wants what it wants. It's irrational, isn't it? Isn't it irrational to walk into something that you know will not pay off, but still keep marching towards it? I heard someone say, I couldn't remember who it was, that humans are not rational beings. We are rationalizing beings. We are not rational. We are rationalizing. In other words, we do what we want regardless of what we know, and then we rationalize it afterwards. As someone else put it, what the heart wants, the will chooses, and then the mind justifies. Proverbs calls that madness. Folly, I think I'll list one more way that I think that folly entices us. It leads us to question the wisdom of God. It calls into question the wisdom of God. In other words, folly leads us to be suspicious of God's wisdom. It can lead us to start to think that what God tells us is wise really is kind of unreasonable. Look at the garden. The garden where our first parents found themselves. And the simple instruction to eat of all the trees of the garden except for that one, don't eat of that one, that became completely unreasonable to them. I was like, why not that one? And so they questioned the wisdom of God and stepped right into folly, which led to fall. Think about another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus was faced with the prospect, the imminent prospect of crucifixion and abandonment and death. And in that moment, he had the choice to choose the option, to choose wisdom, to trust God's wisdom and say, yes, this is, I don't want this, but if you're saying that this is good and if you're saying that this is a cup for me to drink, then I'll, I'll drink it, Lord. He chose the wisdom of God rather than listen to the voice of folly that no doubt was saying, get up, get out of this garden and get away as far away from Jerusalem as you can and you can save your life different garden very different outcome he listened to the voice of wisdom and he refused to question the wisdom of God wisdom for us new hope it starts it starts with us recognizing God for who he is. I'm going to back up for a second. Do you ever feel like what God tells you is good and right and wise just seems unreasonable to you? You start to question, really, is that necessary? Is that even really good? For instance, Jesus says, love your enemy. Really? Really? I mean, I could, hypothetically, yes, but in this real situation right now, Loving this person who has hurt me deeply doesn't, mm, I question that. Or confess your sins to one another, Jesus says. Really? Like open up about my sin 
with someone else? What if they judge me? What if they abandon me? What if they ridicule me? What if that doesn't sound so wise, Jesus? Or when Jesus says, in order to fight temptation, take drastic measures. He uses a metaphor of cut off your hands and pull out your eyes, metaphorically, to, to fight sin, to, to, to keep yourself safe from temptation to sin. And we look at that and we're like, come on, that's a little too much. Jesus, I get it. You see, we tend to, we patronize Jesus sometimes. We listen to these, these words of wisdom and we say, yeah, I get it. It sounds great. It's just a little unrealistic. Jared Wilson, author who some of you might know, he spoke at a men's retreat that we were part of years ago. He said, we think Jesus know how, knows how things ought to be, but he's not so incisive on how things really are. Jesus is a good teacher, but, but in the popular imagination, he's pretty much a naive one. Like, you mean well, Jesus, we get it, but we can't really take serious the way you're calling us to live. It's a little naive, but God comes up. Jesus comes to us and says, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. You are naive. You are naive because you think that you can walk in the way of folly, that you can mess around in the way of folly and somehow, somehow be fine. You are naive to think that rejecting my wisdom is somehow a smart move. You don't see how dangerous and damaging it is, Jesus says. Because, back to a proverb I keep quoting every week for some reason, Proverbs 14, 12 says, there's a way that seems right to a man. It seems so right. It's so obviously right. Oh, but its end is death. Jesus says, who's the naive one here? Jesus' wisdom is not idealistic. It's infinitely practical. Wouldn't you expect it to be? He's not just an expert on life. He's the author of life, and he's calling us to trust him as such. I'm going to give you an example of one way this works. It may, I know it's a struggle for me and maybe a struggle for some of you to trust God in this area. God communicates to us a clear sexual ethic in his word. He teaches us in his word that sex, according to God's wisdom, according to the Bible, is the, a beautiful gift. It's celebrated by God. It's not shameful. It's celebrated by God. But you'll notice, if you read the scriptures, that it's only celebrated as a gift, only truly celebrated as a gift to be enjoyed by a man and a woman who have committed to one another through the covenant of marriage. Other versions of sex show up in the Bible. None of them are celebrated or endorsed or recommended in the pages of Scripture. Outside of that covenant of marriage, it is never celebrated by God. In fact, in fact, he uses words like fornication to describe it or adultery or impurity. And he says that, that like all other deviations from God's design, it always will lead to loss and brokenness and ultimately destruction. And we see that played out in the scriptures in many, many narratives. The destruction of families, of personal lives, of community, of self. So he says, he says, that's my wisdom I'm offering you. And we may, you may, I know I did for many years, instinctively reject that. And, or, or perhaps some of us, we're not in a place where we're rejected, but we're asking, why? Why is that your design? That makes no sense to me, God. That design makes no sense. 
I would argue that if we take time to consider why, as we will do actually in God's providence when we come to the book of Mark, it's going to give us a chance to look more carefully at Jesus's ethic around sexuality in the gospel of Mark just later this winter. But when we, when we look at it carefully, we find that that's not just an arbitrary rule that Jesus has set up. No, it flows out of his perfect design. It makes sense when we understand him more deeply. But, but it's as if Jesus is saying, before you even see why it makes sense, before this even makes sense to you, God is saying, trust me on this. Trust me. He's saying, if I call this wise, you can call it wise too. If you trust me, I will in time show you why it's wise. But even before I show you, I have already shown you that I am wise, so you can trust me. And so wisdom starts with saying, okay, Lord, I submit to what you tell me as wise. I want to learn to understand it better. I want to, I want to grow to understand why, but I want to start from a place of trust in you, submission to you. That's why in verse 10 of our passage in, Pro in Proverbs 9, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The beginning of wisdom starts with fearing God. In other words, wisdom starts with recognizing God for who he is. Wisdom doesn't start by understanding everything about why God did everything the way he did it and why he says what he says in every instance. That, that's not where wisdom begins. Wisdom starts by recognizing who God is and seeing him as trustworthy creator and father and recognizing Jesus as Lord who can be trusted, whose design can be trusted. That's where wisdom starts. And then and when wisdom is grown, we grow in wisdom as we learn to navigate our lives according to that design. As we learn to understand our own needs, as we learn to understand our own desires, our own expectations, all of life we start to learn about in light of how he made us and how he made the world. And we learn more and more and more that we can trust him. We can trust him, and here's why. Because in the person of Jesus, God himself became human like us. Jesus had to navigate the twists and turns of life as a single human. All of life's disappointments, all of life's challenges, and he's the only one who did it with perfect discernment, with perfect insight. Jesus rejected folly again and again and again. He overcame its allure. He fought off the seduction again and again. He chose wisdom always. And yet, in spite of all that, he was willing to die for people like you and me who have a track record of choosing madness, who have a track record of choosing the insanity of sin and the insanity of folly. He died for people like us who, who knowing better, still succumb to the allure. People, people like you and me who still distrust him enough to irrationally return to what we know is ultimately destructive. Jesus was willing to face destruction instead of us, for us, in our place. He, he was cursed, he was punished, he was abused and abandoned, he was ultimately killed 
all so that, all so that the ones who, like us who spend years of our lives and hours of our days pursuing foolishness so that we can experience blessing, eternal goodness. You see, Jesus chose wisdom again and again and again for you, for me. And so now he says, if you will trust me, if you will receive me, all the blessing that I earned is yours. He says, eat the bread I made for you. Drink the wine I mixed for you. I've got so much that I've, I've accomplished for you. Take it. Enjoy it. You see, the beginning of wisdom, it starts there, recognizing who Jesus is, recognizing God for who he is and Jesus for who he is. You know, in the New Testament, we're told that Jesus Christ is, quote, the wisdom of God. It says that in 1 Corinthians 1, 30. There, it says he is the wisdom of God. It, it, Jesus is wisdom in the flesh, flesh and bones, personified. So, so think about it this way. When the Proverbs again and again tell us to pursue wisdom, the problems aren't just telling us to make smarter choices, make better decisions. No, when it says pursue wisdom, it's saying pursue Jesus, trust Jesus, learn from him. When the Proverbs tell us about wisdom, they're ultimately telling us about Jesus. And so, and so we can break this metaphor down. We looked at the woman, wisdom, who's welcoming us into her home. Now, now we, can, we can replace that metaphor with the reality that these words are actually Jesus' words. He is the one who's inviting us into his home. He is the one who's inviting us to make his home our home. He's inviting us to eat his bread and drink the wine that he offers us as we'll do at this table in just a few moments. He's inviting us to sit at his table, and he says, like he did in Matthew 11, learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Learn from me. I wonder if there's anyone here today whom Jesus is calling to get up from Folly's table and get out and get out of her house. And maybe it's not easy because you've gotten comfortable there and, and you're entangled, but it's urgent. The Proverbs chapter one communicate to us something of this urgent invitation. It says, wisdom cries out. And when you read wisdom here, think Jesus cries out aloud in the street, in the markets. She raises her voice at the head of the noisy street. She cries out at the entrance of the city. She speaks, how long, O oh simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will you allow yourself to keep getting tricked by the madness of sin? If you turn at my reproof, he says, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. So New Hope, whatever your goals are, whatever your plans are for 2024, please make this a priority. 
to sit with Jesus, to learn from him, to receive the bread that he has for you. Make this a priority. The Bible is filled with words that Jesus has spoken and recorded, and he's curated these words, and he's preserved them and delivered them to you. Don't neglect them. Don't neglect them. Wisdom in the flesh is calling out to you. He's inviting you in. So as you enter into the rest of this year, where are you going to look to for direction? Whose voice are you going to listen to? Whose voice are you going to allow to drown out the voice of Jesus? Because like I said before, there are lots of influencers and YouTubers and have lots of advice for you and political pundits and news talking heads who have lots of advice for you. My goodness, we're, about, we're, we're in another election cycle. Lord, have mercy on us. Another election. You, we will, each of us will find ourselves distracted, discouraged, disoriented, and, and, and downright misled if we do not prioritize sitting at the fit of Jesus and listening to his voice as we walk through the rest of this year. And we all have to choose who we're going to listen to first and who we're going to listen to most. And may it be by the grace of God that like, like the Apostle Peter, we'd be able to say, like him, Lord, where else will I go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else will I go? Let's pray. Lord, make us willing receivers of your invitation willing acceptors of the urgent call to come to you and learn from you and eat with you and receive all the grace that you have for us. Help us to trust your wisdom above everything else that calls itself wise. And we ask that even as we, in a moment, come to your table and take this bread and this cup, we ask that in true and deep ways, we will internally be coming to you. It's in your name we ask all of it. Amen.